most people translate that opening line as in the beginning. Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So uh, if you know Hebrew, it, it, uh, that's one thing it doesn't say. Like nobody, now Hebrew doesn't have, the Hebrew text, the Hebrew text is written without vowels. So it's impossible to understand written Hebrew without making, uh, that's, uh, that's written without vowels in the, in the Torah, without making some, some assumptions about what the vowels are, because when the vowels of words change, the meaning of them change. But in any case, uh, in Hebrew, if, if one was to use the vowels, and now there is a tradition that everybody agrees on, that this, this is the vowels you're supposed to be using when you look at this, these consonants. Uh, in order to say in the beginning in Hebrew, you would have to say ba-reshit. So ba is a construct form of the word in and the word the. So ba means in the. And, and if you had b without the a sound and that vowel instead, that would mean in a, in a, instead of in the. So the Hebrew text begins b reshit, which means in a beginning. And that should be instantly recognizably different than in the beginning. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining the Sacred Speaks. I'm John Price, your host. I want to introduce you to today's participant, direct you to a couple of websites, give you a small reading, and then we'll begin our conversation. It really was more of an education than anything. Um, I I didn't do much other than listen, and I'm I'm grateful uh, for, for that technique of just listening. Because I learned a lot when in my conversation with Rabbi Jeff Roth. So first to him, Rabbi Jeff Roth is the founder and director of the Awakened Heart Project for Contemplative Judaism. He's the co-founder of, and I'll mess this up, Alat Chaim. Chaim. <laughs> Pardon me on my uh, Hebrew. Uh, where he served as executive director and spiritual director for 13 years. He's the co-leader of the Jewish Mindfulness Teaching Teacher Training Program and has facilitated over 190 Jewish meditation retreats. He's the author of Jewish Meditation Practices for Everyday Life and Me, Myself, and God, both from Jewish Lights Publishing. And he's uh, a wonderful guy to learn from. I was kind of transfixed on, <laughs> on him. <laughs> I think I'm going to go uh, take one of his retreats eventually. Um, so look him up at awakenedheartproject.org. The theme music for this podcast is mod from Modern Nations, my friends uh, Toby and Nolan. You can get them at modernnationsmusic.com. And this week I'm using an artist, uh, Slade Cleaves. And the reason I'm using Slade is because years ago I met him. We were playing a show together. This was back in the... Uh, 
late 90s. And, uh, and it, it became very obvious that Slade is one of the better storytellers uh, as, as from a songwriter perspective that I'd ever seen. And, um, and, and this, this conversation today is all about a story. We're talking about how we look at the stories, the creation of stories, what creates stories, and how we understand our stories. So I wanted to use uh, Slade's work. Uh, you can get him at Slade Cleaves, S-L-A-I-D-C-L-E-A-V-E-S dot com. And in the liner notes of this podcast, I included a link to uh, the song, which is also a bit of a nod to some religious <laughs> text. The song's called Breakfast in Hell, and it is one of my favorites. So at the end of the episode, you can hear the full song and uh, I suggest you hang out and listen. Uh, learn more about this project at thesacredspeaks.com. And please follow, like, forward on Instagram, Twitter, and, uh, and Facebook. Okay, through, through with that stuff. I would like to read something. If, we're gonna, if I'm going to talk or learn about mysticism in any way, I can't help but think about William Blake. So I want to begin our our, uh, our, our project today with some William Blake. This is from There Is No Natural Religion. Man's perceptions are not bounded by organs of perception. He perceives more than sense, though ever so acute, can discover. Reason, or the ratio, of all we have already known is not the same that it shall be when we know more. The bounded is loathed by its possessor, the same dull round, even of a universe, would soon become a mill with complicated wheels. If the many becomes the same as the few, when possessed, more, more is the cry of a mistaken soul, less than all cannot justify man. If any could desire what he is incapable of possessing, despair must be his eternal lot. The desire of man being infinite, the possession is infinite, and himself infinite. Conclusion. If it were not for the poetic or prophetic character, the philosophic and experimental would soon be at the ratio of all things, and stand still, unable to do other than repeat the same dull round over again. Application. He who sees the infinite in all things sees God. He who sees the ratio only sees himself. Therefore, God becomes as we are, that we may be as he is. Thank you for being here. And uh, I have a feeling many of you will be as, uh, as opened up by this conversation that's about to come as, uh, as I was. I'll leave it there. All right, Rabbi Jeff Roth, thank you so much for um, making the time. I have been really blessed by being able to read this book. It, um, I read it a while ago, and, uh, and it clicked as much then as it does now as I was reviewing it for our conversation today. I, I wonder if you could um, just give both myself and, and the listeners a bit of background on who you are and uh, what puts you into a position to be able to talk about uh, what you talked about in this book, A Theology of Mindfulness, Me, Myself, and God. 
Okay, thanks. Um, I uh, <clears throat> I got involved with uh, uh, Jewish life mostly after college. I mean, I had some uh, a background and was raised in a Jewish uh, family, but I got mostly interested after college. And my original uh, interest was uh, in the way that the, uh, a number of people I met were combining uh, the Jewish prophetic tradition with social, social justice work. But I sort of came of age during the Vietnam War and was uh, got very interested in uh, a critique of, of culture and a critique of our society and, uh, and uh, needing to see things from not just from a materialistic point of view and, that, and uh, questions about capitalism. And, uh, so I had a, I had a sort of a, a, a social justice kind of awakening, but then I found that uh, there were people who were uh, doing their social justice work through the, uh, through the lens of the prophetic, the Jewish prophetic, the, the prophets, uh, primarily the work of Arthur Waskow, who is uh, now Rabbi Arthur Waskow and a close personal friend of mine. But at the time, he was uh, somebody whose work I started reading. He was making a, a very interesting uh, mix of um, using biblical texts and, 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 uh, and Jewish, various Jewish teachings uh, in support of a, a, a serious rethinking of a of how we live in the world and um, how we act in the world. So I had that leaning already and, and, uh, and it was combined with the Jewish interest I had in general. I wanted to working in the Jewish community. So I was learning a lot, mostly self-taught uh, Jewish teachings and values. And then I met my first and most important Jewish spiritual teacher, uh, Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi. And he was in a, he was he created a whole new uh, modern a contempt modern uh, Jewish mystical practice Jewish approach uh, a Jewish mystical approach to Judaism uh, that's now come to be known as the Jewish renewal movement. And he came out of the Hasidic tradition. Uh, he was born in Europe. It, basically, his family was fleeing. Uh, around the time of the Holocaust sort of stayed one, one step ahead of uh, Nazi control. And he wound up uh, in New York City, uh, I think around 1942 or 1943, and, uh, and uh, became, became sort of a central figure, although a young, a young student, a central figure uh, in what's now Chabad Hasidism uh, or Lubavitch, that, that branch of Hasidism which had, uh, had relocated itself also post-Holocaust or in the middle of the Holocaust to New York City. It was a, it's a worldwide, it's a huge worldwide movement now. But at the time that Zaman was there, there was the, the Rebbe of the sect, uh, who at that time was Joseph Schneerson, and a couple dozen, you know, a couple dozen followers. Uh, so it was a very, it was quite small. And because of course, as much of the Jewish tradition was decimated uh, in the Holocaust, so, and he was somebody who would, uh, who uh, himself went on a, a quite a diverse mystical path of uh, and ecumenical and 
he sort of broke out of the narrow confines of that Hasidic world, although was deeply versed in it and started traveling and uh, sort of doing the circuit on uh, uh, the human potential movement, consciousness, checked out all the various uh, spiritual traditions, although primarily talked to the mystics of the various traditions. So he got involved with Sufis and with uh, Benedictine monks and uh, and uh, Hindu teachers. And uh, I, I don't know if he had so much direct connection with Buddhism, which affected me later. But uh, in any case, I met him and he was, he was uh, very influential in sort of opening me up to a, a spiritual approach to life that that dovetailed with what I was already uh, interested in, in terms of um, social justice work and universal values. He was very much teaching a form of uh, a contemporary form of Jewish spiritual practice that was was deeply rooted in uh, in the Hasidic tradition and to some degree of the Jewish mystical tradition because the the Hasidic tradition is part of the Jewish mystical tradition and uh, at least in his underpinnings, and uh, but he was presenting everything from a universal spiritual value that uh, approach, and that nothing, uh, no, he was uh, uh, quite concerned with uh, within Judaism with uh, sort of uh, post-denominational approaches, but uh, but in terms of. Uh, the wisdom from other traditions, a uh, non-triumphalist approach to Judaism and to spirituality. That, uh, and, uh, and not only was no one spiritual path better than another, but that they all had essential, we used to sort of talk about it like they all had essential vitamins, so to speak, that in terms of the human soul, we, need, we could use all those vitamins. And he, had, he was a practitioner, not just a scholar, he was a practitioner of those various Paths and was his personal work was was bringing back uh, the riches of various spiritual practices and giving them sort of Jewish legs so that they could be used in a in, in a Jewish context. So that's sort of the place where I uh, decided to change. I'd already been interested in being involved in Jewish life, but sort of changed the focus of where I went. That, that was about thirty five years ago when I met him. And so I moved to Philadelphia, where he happened to be at the at the time. He was studying. He was teaching at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, uh, which originally was a, a movement. Reconstructionism was not a movement that was very theologically oriented. So it was actually quite strange in some ways to have a Jewish mystic teaching there. Um, but it was a time when the movement. What is, what is that? Uh, Reconstructionism. Yeah. Reconstructionism. So the Reconstructionist movement in Judaism started in the 30s and 40s uh, with the teaching of the Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan, uh, who was an Orthodox trained rabbi, but was a professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary, which is uh, where conservative Judaism, uh, is the, that's the seminary for the conservative movement in Judaism. And but he was teaching a, a form of Judaism that was essentially non-theological. Uh, he wanted to speak. Uh, he wanted to speak about Judaism as an evolving religious civilization, and uh, that the early jokes about Reconstructionism were about uh, Recon Reconstructionists pray to whom it may concern. <laughs> <laughs> they, it, was, it was very much not a theological 
ecological movement uh, uh, but was sort of deeply deeply committed to the Jewish folkways uh, but when I uh, it's not a movement that would necessarily have attracted me initially but uh, uh, in the 80s when I decided to move to Philadelphia that there, there was a new president of the rabbinical school and he was sort of bringing in the best teachers he could find in the Jewish world. And uh, so Reb Zalman, my teacher Reb Zalman was, uh, was just, he was an adjunct. He was not a serious, he was not a mainstream teacher there, but he was teaching a course in Hasidic thought and in, uh, and in the science of prayer that he called Davanology. So in, in Judaism, there's a, some people call the prayer uh, Davening. Uh, and uh, so he he sort of created this term davenology, but, but he, was, he was basically the, the main mystical practice he was teaching was prayer oriented, but he was teaching prayer in a way that made prayer relevant. That's what I was very moved when I met him because that's what he opened up for me. The world I was interested in Judaism already, but prayer seemed prayer didn't make much sense to me. Uh, not who to pray to and how to pray and. Uh, but he taught us how to pray in a way that felt very rich and very deep. And partly because he was coming out of a Jewish mystical tradition that had a, a radically different understanding of the divine that I had never heard before. Would you go into that a bit? And that's going to be the, yeah, that's the piece I really, that's the, sort of the centerpiece. And it will lead to some other things you've uh, mentioned to me that we might talk about. So when I met Reb Zalman, the, the teaching that most caught my attention at first was, uh, everything is God, nothing but God. This was a core teaching that, uh, as I understood it at the time, it was a teaching that the founder of Hasidism was really emphasizing. The founder of Hasidic thought and the Hasidic movement was uh, Israel ben Eliezer, who's known more, is better known as the Baal Shem Tov. Uh, and uh, he founded the Hasidic movement in the, uh, I think it was, I think he was born in the 1730s in Poland, uh, but he he created a, the he was the originator of the of the Hasidic movement within Judaism, and uh, in a matter of uh, I think within two generations, his so his founding generation, the next generation, uh, half the Jews of Europe had become followers of Hasidism. Like there were, I think there were about 13 million Jews at the time in Europe. And, and within uh, 30 or 40 years, half of them were followers of Hasidism, uh, which was this, uh, uh, for its time, a contemporary uh, Jewish mystical uh, reworking uh, that emphasized uh, connection to divine, the, the divine, emphasized serving the divine with joy, uh, emphasized prayer, in some ways prayer over study, so the study had been the, the sort of the, the high point in Jewish life was, you know, who's the, who's the brightest student? And uh, he, he's, he's, he made uh, prayer more, more central, which made it much more accessible and more, I mean, anybody could pray. Not everybody could be a scholar, but anybody could pray. And, uh, and he added this, this level of theology that uh, everything is God, nothing but God, which was a heretical thing to say uh, in Judaism. And so uh, when he popularized these teachings, uh, his, 
the mainstream Jewish sources basically outlawed him. They, they, they excommunicated him and said, you know, he, what he's teaching is heresy. And I thought that teaching was a, was a new teaching when I first, uh, that, that that was something that Baal Shem Tov initiated. But it, it turns out he was, he was uh, popularizing some teachings that had, had been already surfacing within the Jewish mystical tradition. The Jewish mystical tradition, uh, sort of in the form that we might even begin to still recognize it today, was primarily began with the publishing of the Zohar in the 1200s in Spain. And, which, and, and uh, the time it was published, it was a brand new story of Judaism, a brand new way of understanding that what, what the Torah was all about, what the Bible was all about, what Judaism was all about. Um, it's, a, it's a mystical theology book, the Zohar, uh, very difficult to read and understand what the theology is, but but various mystical circles picked up on that. But it was a, one of the things I wanted to say about that, that 1200s in Spain, it was, the, was a time when there was a, a real uh, uh, flourishing and crossroad of spirit, spirituality. So in Spain in the 1200s, you, you had influence from Christian mystics and Sufi mystics already, uh, all influencing uh, uh, Islamic mystics, all influencing the, and, and those people in those traditions, their paths crossed, you know, in the 1200s in Spain. So uh, I think that highly influenced what what got written about. But in any case, the Zohar uh, was sort of the cutting edge to introduce the possibility that that the divine presence is somehow here in this reality plane that that we know and see and can feel. Because up until that point, and still following that. Uh, the basic understanding of the divine in Judaism certainly was that the divine was a sort of omni-other, the, mm -hmm. the creator of this universe, but not of this universe. Whereas the, the mystical text of the Zohar essentially is teaching that uh, that something happened, uh, that there was a great cosmic rift in the divine. And uh, this is also central to what this book is about that you were referring to that I wrote uh, the great cosmic uh, myth of the Zohar is that uh, something happened to, to uh, in essence, break the divine, to cause a rift in the Godhead. And uh, we live in the realm of the, that part of the divine that was cut off from, from, uh, from another part of the divine. And essentially what the Zohar points out, uh, which then I get to in my book and what it means on psychological terms, in terms of human nature, is that uh, that rift was caused by human beings. Uh, human beings caused a rift in the divine. And we live in exile as human beings. We live in the exile of that rift that we caused. And so my book is addressing that, but also that's what uh, Jewish mysticism and the Zohar itself was trying to address what happened and what is that rift, how to fix that rift. Uh, and that is the central theme, of, I'd say, of, of a Jewish mystical theology is that there's a rift in the Godhead and the whole the whole task of humanity is to repair the rift partly because we're the ones who broke it you know you broke it you fix it uh, so uh, it's quite an empowering teaching because I mean on the one hand it's a it's a teaching that carries with it the guilt of having broken the divine uh, caused a rift in the divine but 
It's also quite an empowering teaching, which is we can fix it, that the task of humanity is to fix this rift, which we can do. That's the possibility. And in essence, those are some of the themes I, uh, I chose to focus on in that book. Uh, but they're themes I focused on because after meeting Zaman, I started to develop uh, a feeling and a feeling for and a desire for the mystical experience, the experience of uh, non-duality, experience of the divine directly, not as an interesting concept or interesting of ideas. And my personal my personal practice search in that way. Uh, wound up with me practicing in uh, in Buddhist circles, especially in the the Western Vipassana, the Vipassana tradition of Buddhism, uh, mostly as taught by Western Jews, but as taught by Western teachers, many of whom were Jewish by birth. But, uh, but that's where I learned to meditate. And I would say up until, that's the point at which I could, I would say, uh, now, I'm, now I'm interested in the mystical experience as opposed to the, mystical theory and the mystical ideas, and, which I was drawn to, but but my contemplative practice is what makes me feel like something opened up um, to have a taste or a realization of, of uh, in essence, of the non-dual, of the uh, taste of the, what's possible when we're not, not caught in the confusion of the dualistic perspective. Well, let's, let's start kind of your your book there i want to get to one uh let's see where is this uh i've come to understand that many of our human existential struggles stem from the sense of separation that comes from a confused and fragmented view of reality this is your quote from uh the introduction yeah. mm -hmm. and you begin to speak about this rift and um I think that I think a lot of people say that, um, you know, that's I've I've heard this said before. It's the way you backed it up that was so interesting to me. So could could you set that up for us? How, how do um, or I guess the better question is what part of human beings begin to contribute to this rift between the divine and the human? Yeah, so I think there's a an. As I address this in my book, but uh, and this is not uh, certainly not a, a brand new idea of mine. In, in certain ways, uh, the core of what I uh, started to express and to experience and express in this book and my teaching is uh, were some core teachings I learned about uh, paying attention in you know in the Buddhist world and and learning to pay attention in particular to. Uh, language and how language formats the brain and formats our experience, uh, how central it is. And uh, when I'm certainly one of my key teachers there was a uh, um, Buddhist teacher, Ajahn Samedo, uh, who I, luckily I sat on a retreat with him. He was, a, at the time, he was the abbot of a monastery in England. He's retired since then. Uh, and he was trained in the Thai forest lineage of, of uh, Theravadan Buddhism. So he studied in, uh, in Thailand uh, with a master and then became uh, a, a lineage teacher in uh, England. He had a number of monasteries. But so the central, the central uh, teaching that then 
it, it exists within Judaism, it exists in other traditions too, but th that I could sort of trace, oh, here's a Jewish way that that same teaching was being expressed. Uh, but the uh, but I think addressing what you're asking, what, the, uh, what I'm, what I am thinking about is the fundamental problem, like the, the fundamental problem that humanity is dealing with is uh, just how how difficult it is to be a human being and how uh, terribly behaved we are as human beings <laughs> and uh, how badly we treat other beings, yeah. including other human beings. Uh, uh, you could use the word evil, which I want to be careful with, because I'm going to maybe I'll end up saying more about it later. But uh, but the problem of so of so-called evil, but certainly the the problem of how how badly human beings behave, which we could call evil, uh, that 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 was a central problem that uh, human beings have been struggling with, uh, probably as far back as we have a sense of being human beings. That's, that's what I'm going to get to in a second. And uh, and so every tradition is, is, needs to say, what, what happened? <laughs> what happened to us that we're, you know, that things are so bad? And so if you look at, that's my reading of the book of Genesis, and especially the beginning of the book, but all the way through the book of Genesis. And then in essence, what the, the purpose of the book of Exodus is, is to tell this story of what happened. Uh, what happened to human beings? What went wrong? Uh, so you could, in, I guess in Christianity, it's called original sin. Uh, I, I don't know a lot about Christianity, but uh, but certainly this, and this the story I want to get to, but I think it's a universal story, but the, the story the way it's told in the Bible is, is the expulsion from the garden, uh, the garden of Eden. And what, what happened when the primordial human beings, what happened? that wound, wound up with the primordial human beings being kicked out of the garden. And that is where the word evil comes up. And if you look just in the, this is an early story, very early story in, in the Torah, and what, or what would be called the Old Testament. Uh, this is an early story, like it's sort of the prime story. It seems to me that what the book was written for was to talk about what happened, that we live in a world that uh, uh, human beings act so badly. How did that happen? Why did that happen? <clears throat> so what I got out of my studies and, uh, and practice, mostly what I got out of my practice, uh, and teachers like Ajahn Samedo, but in general, the, whole, the whole practice of paying attention is very much, in the, at least in the Buddhist world, is very much directed at paying attention to how the thinking mind works, you know, and what it does to, to uh, cause such grief, and, and why does that happen? And putting all those things together, and my experience and the teachings I learned, I started, I started talking about what I describe as the fundamental problem. There's a that there is actually you could point to uh, a specific occurrence uh, in the history of of the human race that uh, I think initiates. Uh, the aftermath and the books and the story, they're trying to talk about the aftermath. And so I think the fundamental uh, problem that leads to this uh, negative way human beings act uh, was when the species Homo sapiens learned language. 
that language, the origin of language and conceptual thinking uh, was a major turning point. So um, apparently, and I'm, I'm not a scholar in these, uh, in uh, anthropology and archeology, span but as I understand it, uh, for about 130,000 years or 150,000 years, the species Homo sapiens was around. And most likely didn't have what we can think about as speaking language. Uh, it's not hard to imagine that because uh, anybody who's had children, who's been around children, been around babies, uh, it's obvious that uh, that way of uh, the way of speech and language it has to be taught. It's not it's not inherent to the species. That you have to take a baby who has no idea what you're talking about. Uh, uh, no idea that there's a who's talking or that there's a somebody else who's receiving. Uh, you have to train the human, you have to train the mind of a, of a, of beings of our, in our species to, to uh, perceive the universe through the lens of language. That speech and language is one lens through which the universe is perceived. We have eyes and we have ears. So there's other data coming in, but, uh, but uh, the fundamental problem I'm talking about is that uh, at some point this, this phenomena of speech and conceptual thinking originated. It wasn't, it wasn't inherent in the species. It probably was uh, an inevitable outcome that this species would get to this space, place based on the genetic shifts that had happened over time, including from the previous homo species, but so, and so we think that uh, the species didn't learn speech and language because for 150,000 years, the archeological record of the species was pretty similar. Nothing, nothing major shifts. They, the Homo sapiens lived in groups of about 30 individuals, very similar to the way the great apes live. Again, I'm totally relying on other people's uh, research on these things, but... Uh, that they lived in small, small, you know, small little groupings, uh, uh, and uh, then somehow uh, thirty thousand years ago, the archaeological record shifts dramatically in a very short period of time. All of a sudden, human, uh, and this is what that's, and and most the scholars I've read say this is probably a reflection of the origin of speech and language, and with the origin of speech and language. The uh, I, I would say that's uh, I use that as co-terminus with the origin of human beings. So Homo sapiens pre pre language with speech language conceptual thinking. Uh, now we have human beings. That's the, this is the beginning of human history, the human story, and story is a huge piece of this because I think it, it seems to me you need speech and language and concepts to start creating stories. That's all a function of speech and language. And speech and language is fantastic. It's a fantastic tool. It, it allowed a, a, a huge shift in the way uh, Homo sapiens could be in the world and what they could do. And, uh, but it did reshape the, the speech and language totally reshaped the nervous system, the neural pathways in the brain. We know a lot more about this now. And, uh, that the, the way the neurons are working basically became uh, uh, patterned because of the origin of speech and language. It, and speech and language, as I was saying, it's a great tool. 
but has one big side effect. Uh, and that's where I think it's the, that's where I want to speak about the uh, fundamental problem. And the side effect of speech and language conceptual thinking is the origin of the dualistic misperception. That uh, speech and language, the concepts by are inherently dualistic in nature. In order for a concept to mean anything at all, it has to divvy up the universe, which one might say is a is an interwoven flow of things, events happening, all connected one to another. It has to divvy up that universe and say here everything but to move everything of that universe outside of some parameter called the concept. And then only, only the, some small, narrow aspect of reality is, is inside the concept. And not that concepts aren't a perfectly useful tool or, you know, or uh, uh, nothing wrong with concepts per se, other than they inherently support this way of divvying up the world into what's outside the concept and inside the concept. It makes it the... It says the origin of the misperception of, of some ultimate truth, the separation, or you could say the dualistic perspective. And not hard to imagine, I, mean, I guess the example I've been using frequently, just because it's so easy to relate to, is, a, is the concept of a tree. So in order to have a tree, you have to, everything else has to be not the tree, or else it wouldn't mean anything. Yeah. And... Uh, but there is no tree. So a tree is a label. And also it's not even an accurate, it's not really accurate to say the tree is separate from the rest of the universe. And it's not separate from the Big Bang. It's not separate from all the electrons that are floating around, sometimes part of atoms that are in the tree, sometimes part of other atoms that are not in what we would call the tree. Uh, the tree is a, if anything, it's a, the tree is a process that's capturing some aspects of the web of being temporarily in, in, a, in a temporary form, but that form is constantly moving and changing. The, the, uh, the sun is, you know, is uh, through photosynthesis, allowing uh, uh, carbon atoms and carbon dioxide to be absorbed into the tree, and then the tree can do something with those, and then the tree breaks those up, and oxygen comes out, and, uh, but everything's flowing. It's like it's like a moving river, and the importance here is this: is the fundamental misperception that that there is some truth to separation, that there that things are disparate and separate from one another. And it's it's convenient. It's a con concepts are a convenient tool for understanding certain things for for. Uh, Concepts are really good for filling a refrigerator with food, you know, knowing what to plant and how to harvest. And, uh, but they give us this fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of things, which is that everything is God and nothing but God. That everything is part of one great unfolding of being. So that's the fundamental thing. Uh, that's what I talk about, the fundamental problem. And I think the book of Genesis is one version, there's a, there's, there's a way it tells that story of the origin of speech and language, thereby resulting in evil uh, and the, downwards, the downward flow of human history. But I think you could say that's what the book of Genesis is all about, about human beings coming onto the planet and making a mess of things until it gets as bad as it possibly could be. And that's metaphorically represented in the Jewish version as the, when the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt. 
but I think it's still the condition of the world. It's the condition of the world that uh, human beings are enslaving other human beings. So I can expand on all of those things. Where would, where would you like to go from there, you think? Well, I, uh, this, this is the idea of interdependent co-arising, and I was first given that phrase in Buddhism when, when I was studying Buddhism. And I love that... Um, I don't know, Jeff, you have a real... I appreciate your... Uh, <laughs> this is going to be odd. I appreciate the language that you use because um, the the there's something about the way you speak about this uh, that just... It's like it provides me the right images in my mind to envision some of these things. That was a very eloquent depiction of this idea of interdependent co-arising. And the only kind of additional thought that I... I love the term concept. I, I did some some look looking into the term, and it, its origin point, at least in English, is French, and it's concipier. It's a to grasp, you know. But it's not a it's not a just a hold. It's a grasp and and contain, and um, and so what I'd like to move into is a little bit of that. Your um, your your use of language. Because you come from a rich rabbinic tradition of working over various interpretations to almost chew into the material and see what what emerges, and I think I think the consequence of that being your um, your trajectory is that the way you speak. I mean, I'm watching you sitting there, closing your eyes, and almost moving through the images in your mind as a, as a musician would when they're playing a, a, a recital. Uh, so so let's, let's get into some of the rabbinic tradition. And, uh, and the more you talk about um, the kind of Jewish story uh, from Genesis to Exodus, uh, 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 please. So the, uh, the story is at the heart of Judaism. The, the story and our the telling of a story and our interaction with that story is at the heart of Judaism. So, so now, from a fundamentalist point of view, you'd say that yeah, that that there's a this is a uh, a um, it's a fundamentalist point of view that this is a this is a a, a divine revelation through speech and language that that the vehicle through it the divine chose to interact uh, with humanity and from the Jewish point of view then in particular with the, the Jewish ancestors was to have a speech and language relationship that the, that, uh, the world was uh, and its nature was revealed to us through speech and language and that speech and language from a traditionalist point of view is the speech and language that uh, finds its way eventually into what we would call the Torah, because probably will come as no surprise to anybody that the Torah was an oral tradition. Uh, and then uh, but there's a, uh, and then at some point it got written down. I guess that's one more one more building block in this process to mention too is that so there was the origin of speech and language, and then another huge huge shift in the way human beings function takes place with the origin of writing. So, and writing came much later, relatively, I mean, 30,000 years ago, not that long ago altogether for speech, but apparently 
writing is only closer to uh, five or six thousand years old. Uh, we'll say I'm not a scholar, so let's give or, give or take a thousand years on that one. But <laughs> nobody's writing you to is it. much writing is it's, writing is much younger, but uh, writing obviously has a huge impact on stories because or once an oral tradition gets written down, it loses a certain amount of fluidity, uh, at least in my opinion. Uh, as a storyteller, it's certainly true of my stories. I, when I tell a story, it changes every time. You know, I think that's just the nature of storytelling. And, but I think that's probably good. And you know, but, uh, but you have to understand that Judaism is then built off of this uh, set of particular words that although they weren't always written down, got written down. And then uh, as, as, if, as, as if to encapsulate the whole thing all over again, even after that step was written down, then in order for Judaism to progress, there had to be tales of new stories that weren't written down when the other stories were written down. But uh, nevertheless, they were, they were the stories at the same time as the written stories happened. And then the and then the the, the sages of our tradition had to argue: Well, should we write these down or not? And they're actually big arguments in Judaism about whether to write down the next level of the teaching. So, and that's now I'm talking about the whole rabbinic tradition. So the so the rabbinic tradition is essentially a, of Judaism, essentially a, a brand new religion built on the shell of biblical Judaism. Like we don't practice; nobody practices biblical Judaism. There's no temple. You don't take have animal sacrifices. The, the primary way of serving the divine was to take animals to the temple and let the priest kill them and, sp and sprinkle the blood and appease the divine that way and make a connection. I thought nobody practices that, but, but that was Judaism. That's biblical Judaism. So, so rabbinic Judaism basically did the process all over again, had new stories, struggled about whether to write them down or not, eventually wrote them down. But then, you have, but, but nevertheless, you have to order to understand anything about Judaism is the the written word is at the core of the certainly of the inherited tradition, and and our beliefs and views and opinions as Jews were written down, and then and then you have to sort of say, oh, these these are what Jews think because here, here it says it. This is these are the words you have to. So uh, that's a it's not a good way to be a mystic in the world. Essentially, <laughs> if, if everything's already if everything's already revealed, then in essence, you're not even supposed to really have mystical experiences. <clears throat> supposed to believe what you're told, so to speak, uh, and do what it says, and because the mysticism already happened. Somebody had the mystical experience way back when, but but who are we compared to them? <clears throat> All right, so that, but that, so Judaism has that as its base. But the Jewish mystics were a very minor sub population than within Judaism, maybe within every tradition, the mystics are a, a subsect, a small subsect usually. Uh, but the mystics, uh, in essence, they had mystical experiences. And then they, and the, and so they had, to, they had to, they had to have somehow room had to be made for their mystical experiences to, to fit it back into a tradition somehow. Uh, because the mystical experience isn't always exactly what it says it's going to be in writing. It's a direct experience. And uh, <clears throat> so if you look at the depth of the Jewish mystical tradition, the Jewish mystical tradition is essentially a, uh, 
it's a linguistic form of mysticism. So this is, there's one good one interesting thing about that and drawbacks to it. It's not it's not necessarily the kind of mysticism that comes from deeply looking at a tree uh, or from sticking your hands into the earth. Uh, so in order to have that part of the experience, the, the Jewish mystic has to rely on the fact that somewhere back far enough when the Torah got written down originally, those people had their hands in the earth. So some of the stories of the earth made it into the words of the Torah. But the Jewish mystic has to have all of, in essence, has his mystical experience defined by somehow experiencing the divine through speech and language and words and writing. That that becomes the, that's the, that's the material that the Jewish mystic has to work with. And so in order for the, and, and generally you'd say that speech and language and writing formats the brain uh, into particular beliefs and views and opinions. This is, this is now where the Buddhism starts to come in because in the, in the Buddhist practice, one can actually be, begin to, through, the, through contemplative practice and witnessing, one can begin to become the witness to the linguistic process itself, to, to the to the, you can you can begin to see thoughts forming up in the mind. You can see that they're made up of words. You can become the witness to the words rather than not the, rather than the thinker of the words. So you have some purchase through that process on on words and how they work. But the Jewish mystic didn't really have that as a technique uh, before this generation, anyways. So the, the way the Jewish mystic uh, got over the limitations of speak, speech and language was to essentially create a form of mysticism that deconstructed language. If you can deconstruct language, then you can uh, then you can tear apart all the preconceived notions. And once you deconstruct language, including on the level of the neurons of the brain, now brand new brand new uh, experiences can arise and new ways of of explaining those experiences arise. Because either way, we're, I mean, you and I, to have this conversation and whoever's gonna be listening to this conversation, we're completely, almost completely limited to what's actually happening by what words are, are coming out. Yeah. And the, the people listening to this are not even gonna, you, you at least get to look at me while we do this. <laughs> you know, I, I think what you said before, when you said before, there, uh, there was something about the way I said it I wouldn't discount that there was something about the way I looked when I was saying it yeah, to you that, you that touched you yeah. and, and, the, and the listeners won't get that but so you, I'm just trying to point out to the very the limitations of the spoken word I mean, it's great the words are great but they are what they are there's some limits to it and so the so the Jewish mystics deconstructed language literally they changed they, they tore the letters of the word apart and said oh the individual letters mean something in each word. They change the letters into numbers. So each letter has a number in Hebrew, in the Hebrew way of working with letters. That's an old tradition, but the mystic used those numbering systems. Like even today, at Jewish books are sometimes uh, the page numbers are just used letters of the alphabet. So the first ten, the first ten letters of the alphabet are the digits from one to one to ten. And then, uh, so Yud is the tenth letter, represents ten. And these, so Yud Aleph, Aleph, the first letter is page eleven. So, so the mystics went in and used that system of using letters as numbers and said, "Well, words words have a 
if you add up the total of the numbers of the words, now you have a word has a number associated to it. And all the same words that have that number, even if it's made up of different letters, must be related. Uh, so it's just totally, it, uh, it, uh, it totally uh, frees up the possibility of moving past the fundamentalist text because you don't have to listen only to what the text says. Now you can say to what the text is really saying by ignoring what the text says and, and taking it apart and having numbers. And, uh, and uh, they go so far as to deconstruct grammar as well. They don't, so, because another feature, another feature of language, now this I learned from my teacher, Reb Zalman, is that, that, the, that the grammar of a language heavily impacts, at one point he said the grammar of a, la of a language impacts the ethics of its civilization. Whoa. The language of a civilization is impacted by the grammar of its language. I think that's how it came out. So if the brain is being formatted by language, part of that formatting is a grammatical formatting. But there, you can't put every word next to every other word. You know, there's, there's rules for how the words go together. But if you break the rules for how the words go together, there's, that's another way of deconstructing language. So that's, that was the example I, in the book, if you read my book, I, I use an example where the Zohar did just that on this particular story, too. It was on this particular story of the exile from the Garden of Eden. And I, I, I looked at what the Zohar said about that story. And in there, I wouldn't have found this as an original scholar. I found this out because I, uh, uh, a friend, a person I know, Daniel Matt, who did the contemporary trans, new translation into English of the old Zohar, he pointed out here, this is a pretty interesting piece people should look at. So I looked at it and I thought, it was a very interesting piece. I, I would never have found it otherwise. But uh, nevertheless, he, he picked on a particular story where, where this deconstruction of languages becomes completely central to how the Zohar understood the, what happened in the Garden of Eden. And so that is, if you want to go there, we can go into that particular story. Um, but but the main point I'm trying to make for now is that language itself, for, if you're a Jewish mystic, that's the, that's the material one you work with, but you can have deep experiences by deconstructing language. Because once you do that, you're going to have a brand new take uh, of what, what's actually happening around you, different, some well, of which are gobbledygook. Well, I mean, you can, you can imagine all sorts of things that aren't so great, but... Uh, I immediately was thinking about creation myth and what we tend to see at its very, at the baseline is out of the void or in the nothingness form appears. And, and that, I, you know, that's essentially what we're getting at is how does the human being begin to make sense of this dynamic between the infinite and the particular? And so you, 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 when you were talking about Genesis, you pay particular attention to the expulsion, you know, from the garden and then Exodus. Um, so, so yes, I, I would like to go in even as detailed as you wanted to go. I'd like to go into Genesis and, and, and make our way to Exodus as well. Good. Okay.
So I think it, it probably doesn't take, uh, sort of just based on what I've been saying up until this point, it probably doesn't take that much uh, imagination to, to see that uh, if something is going to come out of nothing, uh, the interface for understanding that is language. <laughs> language is almost the peak example of something coming out of nothing. Uh, it wasn't there, and then it is there. Uh, but but not only that, it's like, there's no way we can reflect on what came out of nothing, talk about what came out of nothing, understand what came out of nothing. Yeah, imagine it, yeah. Oh, no way to do it outside of language. Like we're, we're already stuck with the language to go there. <laughs> and I think this, uh, now I do think that there are contemplative practices that give us some purchase outside of language. I, I said that already. All right, so, but let's go to the Jewish version. So, uh, so, you know, most people sort of think that the Torah and the book of Genesis starts out with the creation of the world. But uh, what it really is pointing at, from my perspective, it's not the creation of the world, and it's certainly not primarily about the creation of planet Earth, which is one kind of a world. Uh, but I'd say it's the, uh, that the story really, the fundamental story that's being taught in the book of Genesis is the is the creation of the human world. How do human beings come into being? And, and, and the world, what is the world of human beings like? And that's a, that is a world that is defined primarily by, uh, certainly one of the fundamental defining features is, is speech and language. It's not the only thing. We have, we have drives and we have sensory experiences, but, but the fundamental human experience, you know, you'd say it's... Uh, one of its hallmarks is that speech and language arose, and we're operating from that realm of reality. And I think the Torah is pointing to that. So, <clears throat> so it's, uh, it's and the, the original, the opening verse of the Torah that most people still in all, in, I, probably in almost all English versions, uh, certainly I, I think in all Christian English versions. Oh, I shouldn't speak about it since I don't know what I'm saying, but. Uh, <laughs> is uh, most people translate that opening line as in the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So uh, if you know Hebrew, it, it, uh, that's one thing it doesn't say. Like nobody, now Hebrew doesn't have, the Hebrew text, the Hebrew text is written without vowels. So it's impossible to understand written Hebrew without making uh, that, uh, that's written without vowels in the, in the Torah without making some, some assumptions about what the vowels are because when the vowels of words change, the meaning of them change. But in any case, uh, in Hebrew, if, if one was to use the vowels, and now there is a tradition that everybody agrees on that this, this is the vowels you're supposed to be using when you look at this, these consonants. Uh, in order to say in the beginning in Hebrew, you would have to say ba-reshit. So ba is a construct form of the word in and the word the. So ba means in the. And, and if you had b without the a sound and that vowel instead, that would mean in a, in a, instead of in the. So the Hebrew text begins b reshu, which means in a beginning. And that should be instantly recognizably different than in the beginning. Almost everybody who hears this for the first time goes like, oh, of course, that's, that's really different, isn't it? <laughs> in the beginning is not the same thing as in a beginning. 
So it's almost like it's, it's saying, it's, it's, it's deliberately saying once upon a time, there was this story. It's not trying to say, it's not the first story. It's not pretending to be the first story. It's, it's a particular story. And then that opening line already becomes, this is in the story of when heaven got separated from earth. This is a, once upon a time, heaven got separated from earth. It's like separation right there in the opening sentence. Why should heaven be separated from earth? This is heaven. This is, I mean, heaven and earth, that's a dualistic perspective right from the beginning. You know, and that, the opening sentence says it. In, the, in once upon a time, uh, there was the heaven and the earth as separate things. And it even says sort of once upon a time, God created the heaven and the earth. But now you're talking about separateness. But uh, the Zohar points this out. If you look at the order of the words, and here's where, he, here's where you already start playing with the order of the words. It says, Bereshi, which means an, in a beginning, Bara, uh, which implies a completed action, cr created. And then the next word is God's. The word Elohim is a plural form of Hebrew. We use it to mean God, but also it's in the plural form, so it looks more like God's. And, you, and, and the Zohar points out, uh, in the beginning, gods were created. Elohim was not the creator in that story. In, Elohim was what was created in that. So that's what the Zohar says, that uh, there was a beginning that created Elohim. Now, they don't go as far as calling Elohim a, a many gods. So this is, this is also some interpretation. But they do say Elohim was a particular aspect of the divine. And they're saying that particular aspect of the divine was created by some other particular aspect of the divine called Rashid. Uh, and then they have a whole way of understanding what part what that is. But, but even they're saying uh, Elohim was created and as was heaven and earth. But heaven and earth are separate already. And uh, just one more thing from that phrase, that opening phrase is that uh, the opening word reshit starts with a letter bet. And as I mentioned already in Hebrew, the, the letters have numerical values. So the, the numerical value for one is the first letter, obviously, of the alf alphabet. Alphabet is alphabet. Those are the first two letters of Hebrew. Uh, so Aleph is one and Bet is two. Bet is the first letter, Bet's the second letter. And numerically, you think of Aleph as one and Bet as two. So already, not me, or early, early on, Jewish commentators on that story said, why did it start with the letter Bet? How come the Torah, our most important text, <coughs> starts with the letter Bet? And then they have also, and not Aleph. They're, so early on, this was recognized as some, something's going on here. It's not, there's no Aleph there. How come it started with the with Bet? So, now, I would say because this is the story of duality. This, that's the whole point of this story. This is the Bet story. Once upon a time, duality came into being. Heaven, earth, good, bad, right, wrong. And, and then from there, the, the whole first story makes, the whole opening of Genesis makes a lot more sense. So uh, once you realize this is a particular story, the story of human beings and the story of how we have a dualistic perspective, and it just keeps coming over and over again. Like there was, there weren't two people this day. There was one person, and it wasn't a male, and it wasn't a female. That happened later. And separating into gender happened later, because uh, gender is a construct. Gender is actually not real. 
that's uh, that's what I would say. Now I think I think we're just getting to that point now. I think we're in this country and maybe other places in the world too, where uh, we're experiencing a radical rebellion against the idea of the dualistic perspective of gender. Like this is an important an important theological uh, it's sort of a very important event that's going on right now. This uh, um, moving past the duality of gender. So this is, a, I think, a huge spiritual shift that's, you know, who knows what will happen with it. None, we don't know the future. But anyway, so I think this story is all about the origin of duality. <clears throat> and uh, because, because the, and I think it's, it, because along with the origin of duality and the dualistic perspective, that's when everything started to go wrong, at least in this human story. You know, it's not that there weren't earthquakes before then, and I, there must have been tidal waves, and uh, I'm sure there were homo sapiens that were eaten by lions, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but I wouldn't call that evil. Like it seems to me, if you take human beings off the planet, the word "evil" has no meaning whatsoever. There's nothing about this existence that's evil, except what's coming out of the ignorance of these Homo sapiens who are now called human beings. Uh, and, and and even there, I think it's coming out of a fundamental ignorance. That's why this is a fundamental problem: is that the, all this bad behavior comes out of a fundamental misperception of a dualistic perspective. If everybody was connected to everybody else, why would you ever hurt anyone? It's like, it would, you know, you don't have to, you don't have a rule to tell your right hand not to poke a hole in your left hand. You don't need a rule for that. Uh, anyway, so I think this is the opening story that's being told and it goes right in. From there, just the story goes right for it. Because I think, <laughs> I think the early one of the reasons I think that the one of the reasons I think that this is so deeply encoded. I don't think the Hebrew language is the is the divine language, although many Jewish mystics do, and many Jewish fundamentalists do. I guess in essence think that God speaks Hebrew more than anything else, but uh, doesn't make any sense to me. But but one of the reasons the text and the Hebrew text and this text is so worthwhile. And the Hebrew is worth paying attention to is because Hebrew is very old. It's a very old language. The Semitic languages are really an old family of languages that harken back, that have more, they're more resonant with uh, what was going on when language came into being. The older a language is, the more sort of, not secretly, but unconsciously encoded in it. There's, there's much more onomatopoeia in the Semitic languages the individual sounds actually do mean more that, that words were put together from individual. I, I imagine that, again, I'm not a linguist, I'm not a linguist, but you know, words came together by putting certain sounds together. And this, this, we don't have such a strong feeling for that now, but uh, but there's a reason why, like the, the like the one of the most important words in Hebrew, certainly in terms of Hebrew liturgy, is the word Shema. So, which is the it's a central prayer in the Jewish liturgy. It's a it's a it's a prayer that gets translated. Uh, Listen, Israel, God is one. You know, our God, Yudhevavai is our God. God is one. But the first word is listen. So Shema means listen. And Shema means listen because it starts with shh. 
Everybody knows that means listen. It's not an accident that that letter is in that word. So it's just one example. It's just a teeny example of how a letter has a has a place in a word. Okay. So so in uh, so I think that's that's a reason why this this is a very old story we're talking about. These these the, the Semitic creation myths. These are these are stories that are close to when storytelling began. <laughs> when, as soon as somebody, as soon as the first human beings realized they were here as human beings, they must have been wondering how they got here. I, I imagine these were the early stories. That the early stories would be, how did we get here, and how come how come we're killing each other? <laughs> you know, why is it why is life so terrible? Yeah, what are the I mean, rules? That's what I'd be interested in. What are they right exactly? So, uh, so. In any case, this is the story of how this all came about, how this mess all came about called humanity. And so the text itself says, okay, here's, here's how it happened. There were two trees in the garden. All right, so it's like this, the whole thing goes into dualism right away. There's two trees, you know, and, and there's only one you can't eat from. And the only tree you shouldn't eat from is the tree of knowing good and bad. It's, it's almost like saying, don't go down this dualistic path because if you go down this dualistic path, <laughs> life is not going to be very good. <clears throat> you know, don't eat from the tree of good and bad. Don't get caught up in good and bad. Don't get caught up in, uh, you know, in, a, in the dualistic thing. And the text says, because on the day you do that, you will surely die. This is what, so supposedly, not, I think you have, from my perspective, this is a whole story. Now, human beings are trying to write a story of what happened. And it's full of all their projections of what went yeah. wrong. So human beings are projecting what went wrong, and they need somebody to blame. So God's as good as anybody else to blame. But God set this up. You know, this God set us up, and it even sounds like a setup too. Like, oh, here's all these trees. Just don't eat from this one. It's like, you know, what a story that is. <laughs> Why I put it there? <laughs> you know, uh, but it's blame. It's all about blame because. We don't want to blame ourselves for the evil. We got to blame somebody else other than us for what went wrong. So we blame the snake. Right? That's one of the things in there is the snake. So, <clears throat> so if you look in the story of this, if you look at the Hebrew words, it's very interesting, the story of the snake. So this, this is, these two sentences come right side by side. So uh, right before the snake gets introduced, the man's already into this, the dualistic thing has already happened, so to speak. But so the the uh, and it says it says uh, Adam and Eve were naked. Okay, and the word for naked in Hebrew is arum, and the plural for that would be arumim. So Adam and Eve were naked; they were uh, arumim. They were naked. Now the very next line says v'hanachashaya uh, arum. Uh, and so the snake, this, this, right when the snake gets into the snake was the snake was our room, and we we just learned about what that word was because human beings are our room. Human beings are naked, and then the snake is naked. But if you look at any translation, it's going to say the snake was cunning, the snake was evil, the snake was, even though it's using the same word, it's, it's, it seems to me it's a mistranslation. They want to say something bad about the snake. But I think what the text is saying is the snake is us. We're the snake. The snake is us. The snake is part of our nakedness. 
I think, and I think uh, subtly is talking about reptilian consciousness, that inside every one of us is a reptile. It's called the reptilian brain. Even, that's even what we call it now. We still call it the reptilian brain. And the reptilian brain says, that looks good. Go for it. That looks really good. I think you should eat that stuff right there. You know. Because <clears throat> it's just that it's not, it's not different than us. So we still have that. The snake is still telling us to eat that. It looks good. And the snake is not evil. It's just naive. Because well, they make it just naive or something. But the and the, the the it's a value based. It's like our nervous system, like approach or avoid, friend or foe. You know, uh, all those right. dualities. You know, good good and evil means that do you know I shouldn't go after that. I should go after that. Yeah, you know, this is what I want. This is what I don't. And that it, it there's a it's the value component too. And I think that's what I love so much about that enlightening moment that I had while reading your stuff is that it's, it is good and evil. It's, but it's good and evil from our perspective. And we even make the reptilian brain evil. Right. The reptilian brain is doing a really good job. You just shouldn't always listen to it. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, uh, that's why, that's the good part about having some more, some more ability to, you know, it's not, a, it's not bad that we have a, a, a cortex. It's not, it's not bad that language arose. It's a side effect. It's a bad side effect. Good and bad is a side effect. It's the dualistic side effect. That's the problem. Just like with all those ads about medicines, you know, mm-hmm. it's a great medicine. For, for five seconds, you hear about how great it is. And then for two minutes, you have to listen to all the ways it'll kill you. But other than that, it's a really good medicine. <laughs> so, yeah, you could, I would even wait it the other direction. So speech and language is fantastic. You could, Rattle on for years about it, and then there should be a little piece that but it'll kill you. <laughs> that is a side effect, by the this way. This will really confuse will you and mess you up. It could. So, so they eat from this. They eat from this tree, and just within lines, but almost basically the next event after eating from the tree is a murder. Again, came. It's, it's just the next story. If we look in the Torah, it's really the next story. They get kicked out of the garden. Then they have kids and one of them kills the other one. It's about that close. <laughs> you know, add another 15 words or something, you know, a couple more, right. a couple more sentences, but essentially the next act. Although there is one more important one. The, the first thing they do after they, uh, <clears throat> the first thing that happens after they eat from this tree that they're not supposed to eat from supposedly, and now they're living in a dualistic perspective. Now they go, ah, oh, I'm naked. I better start covering up. And so it's like they get they get to be self-conscious. You know, uh, but in that sense, so there's no without dualistic perspective, there's no self. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's still part of the teaching we're getting. There's no separate self. There's there's these things that are functioning, and self is a fine term to use to some degree. It's just not the absolute truth. There isn't. On an absolute level, there's no separate self. Because on the absolute level, there's no separateness whatsoever. Separateness only exists in the conceptual realm. Separateness is a concept. It's not a good description of reality. Uh, so in, in various Buddhist traditions, you know, they'll just come out and say it. All separation is untrue. All separation is untrue. 
but it's functional. I mean, it's, it, we need to work with it. It's a, it's a helpful concept for certain things. But let's get back to the biblical piece of it. So, so they they they're naked. So they, they all of a sudden now they're self-conscious. So uh, that now they're living in a perspective of good and bad, and so they're feeling guilty somehow. They want they want to once you're stuck in that place, you're going to start putting on masks. You're going to start putting on defense. Uh, for feeling bad because bad is different than good and good is better and bad is worse and, and once you and uh, so then the line comes uh, in the Torah the line is so this happens and it says the in, in English a translation would be something like the, the voice of, of the voice of the divine or the voice of yud heh uh, uh, they heard the voice of yud heh walking in the garden that's the next thing that happens they heard the voice of Yudhevave walking in the garden, and they and they they had to hide. And the word voice <clears throat> in the grammar of that particular sentence, the word voice is associated to the word ruach, which later comes to be the name for one of these four levels. You were relating to this four-level approach that I talked about, but that comes out of the Jewish mystical tradition. I didn't, right. I didn't make that up. And uh, that word has to do with the heart level. And I think with the and the, so the heart and the voice, like, uh, voice like when we sing, voices come from our heart, come from the emotional level. The words come from the intellectual level. So the lyrics, you're musicians, so I imagine you can relate to the, so the lyrics are more on the intellectual level, but the music itself takes you on the emotional plane of the of the journey. Yes. But I think what the text is saying is that starting with this moment when we went into the dualistic perspective and and had this whole process of conceptual thinking was fine, but we got cut off from our hearts. So we're, the, the whole language thing is sort of caught up in the head. And so the heart, when it says that they heard the voice of yud heh walking, is really another way of saying, and the Jewish mystical tradition will pick up on these words and, and bring this out later. This is, I think what's really happening is the heart is saying to the head, where did you go? What happened? Where are you? You know, because now... And the way the Zohar says that is <clears throat> from this moment of eating from the tree, this is, a, this is a, almost an exact quote from the Zohar, uh, from, from the time of the eating of the tree, speech went into exile from voice and remained so until the events at Sinai. So speech, now they're talking about speech, conceptual thinking, words, speech is an exile from voice. Voice is the heart and the emotions. But speech is an exile, and it remained in exile until Sinai. And because we're caught up in this dualistic perspective and cut off from the heart of compassion, in essence, then it makes sense that the next thing is a murder. And then from there, the book of Genesis basically downhill. You know, it's, a, it's the story of just how bad human beings could be. Well, let me, uh, let me jump and, in, because the one the, in the translation that I've read before um which is not the torah it's certainly not original um the the line is now they are like us knowing the difference between good and evil yeah so i would say that's uh i think this is the defensive posture now of the human being sort of like uh explaining why you know where we're projecting onto God's 
So I certainly think when we say, when, when us human beings, you know, so I'm sorry for those who hear this differently, but for us human beings is that we are created in God's image. It's, it's essentially the, got it backwards. Right. God's created in our image. You know, we, did, we created that story and we created it from our heads, basically. Not even so much from the hearts because our heads are cut off from our hearts and we're trying to, we need to blame somebody for something going wrong. We need to figure out what happened and who did this. And uh, so we are like the gods. We those gods were created in our image. We're just like them. They're like us. We're like them. We're, uh, and the language, and the and the this side effect of language is is sort of keeping it this way. So that's why the Zohar is, is saying, you know, we need to something has to happen that's going to overcome this rift. And I know you want to get there, so. Let me just tell you the, <laughs> a couple of snippets from the Zohar piece, because uh, I think you, I know you read it and you were relating to it. But and it's this example about grammar. So, so the Zohar wants to tell this story about what happened. So it takes two verses, takes two lines uh, from the text, because because the Zohar is a mystical midrash. That means that the the Zohar is written as a series of stories about the true underlying secret meaning of Torah text. The Midrash was a process, in essence, that the rabbi, that rabbinic Judaism came up with to explain the biblical text, to explain the stories that were missing from the biblical text. Now you can tell stories about the text, and those stories are important stories, and that's called Midrash. And the Zohar is in that, is in that lineage of telling a story about the text, but it's a mystical Midrash, whereas the rabbinic Midrash was not mystical. It was pretty political, actually. It was a they were trying to get power. They were trying to take power away from the, <clears throat> the priestly class. They were trying to deal with the power relationship with Rome and, and the conquerors. So very power-oriented. But the mystic, this is a mystical midrash. So they picked these two verses. So in verse 23, it says, yud Elohim. These were two names for God. I don't have time to get into that now, but these, this is a, it's, a, it's a double ap appellation for the divine. But yud Elohim expelled him from the Garden of Eden. So it says, Yudhevave Elohim, names for God, kick, kicked him out of the garden. And then the next verse says, he drove out the man. Uh, and it's a repetition. So any good Torah commentator is, uh, is going to sort of work off the principle that there's, there, there are no redundancies in the Torah. So if something is mentioned twice, it's trying to give you two different teachings. It's not just that, it's just a basic hermeneutic principle in in Judaism, so and here it happens. Here, this this text it seems like it's redundant. He kicked him out of the garden. Yudhevavim uh, expelled him from the garden. He drove out the man. Now, so they they want to explain this redundancy. And you just need to one, know one more Hebrew word. So uh, when it says he he drove out the man in Hebrew, there's a there's a word that's pronounced et. And it's a grammatical form of Hebrew that has no meaning to it, other than to say, here comes the direct object. So if you say, he drove out the man, in Hebrew, you'd add this word, et, so you say, he drove out at the man. And et just means, here comes the direct object. It doesn't have a meaning. It's, like, it's a grammatical tool, but it doesn't have a separate meaning. And the Zohar, I'll just read you the Zohar so people can hear the language of the Zohar. Uh, Okay. Oh, yeah, here it is. Oh, I was looking right at it. That's why. Okay. 
that's a common mystical thing. Okay, we. Uh, uh, so the Zohar, the Zohar looks at these two lines and says, "We don't know who drove out who." So the line said, right? The line's pretty clear. It said, Yudhavavilim expelled him from the garden. He drove out at the man. Uh, he drove out the man. And Elazar says, we don't know who drove out who. That's interesting. If the Blessed Holy One drove out Adam, divorced Adam, or not. But the word is transposed. He drove out at. At precisely. Who drove out at? Adam. Adam drove out at. That's why it's written that yod Elohim expelled him from the garden. Why did he expel him? Because Adam drove out at, as we've said. Now, maybe that sounds like it sounds a little bit like who's on first. It's not clear, and it is not so clear. So again, my friend Daniel Matt helped me understand what's going on here. I don't think I would have by any means otherwise. But uh, so. What the Zohar is doing is saying that the, first of all, is that the second line came first. And that's an acceptable, again, a Jewish exegetical principle, which is that even though there's, that there's no definitive early and later in the Torah, so just because a line was said later does not 100% mean it happened later. So that's just a, that's a principle they can just, they don't have to think about that. Out. That already was made up by the rabbis. But, well, but what, what we're getting at here is, well, is that, and I think this is kind of a, a, a Jungian idea, one of the things I love about Jung is that, you know, essentially what we're doing is trying to locate our sense of suffering in somebody else. So we, we locate the evil that's in us in another, never realizing that if we would simply look within us and see that we are the expeller, you know, we, we are the ones who are doing the expelling simply by the nature of our human existence, then we would become increasingly more conscious by that kind of contemplative act. Exactly. We, we saw that in the snake already. Yes. The snake is us. Not, okay. So, so here the Zohar is saying, okay, Adam did something first. That's why he got kicked out of the garden. So the verse 23, when it's when the God is kicking him out of the garden, why, why did he kick him out of the garden? Because in the next verse, it tells you why Adam did something. And here's where they, they this is where they are willing to totally deconstruct language. So they take this word et, which means that it has no purpose other than to say, here comes the direct object. And they say, no, Adam was the subject. So, so, so they, they break the grammatical rule right away there. They know Adam's the one who did something. And what did Adam do? Adam drove out at. So now they turn this thing at, this particle that was supposed to make Adam the direct object. Now they turn it into a noun altogether. Now it becomes a separate noun. So Adam drove out at. And that's why he was kicked out of the garden. And then what is at? So then the Zohar in other places makes it clear too. At is a code name in the Zohar for the Shekhinah. You may have heard of that term. The Shekhinah usually is thought of as the feminine aspect of the divine. <laughs> and so the basic, the basic uh, split, when I mentioned earlier that the, what Kabbalists are dealing with is the fundamental rift in the Godhead. And the fundamental rift in the Godhead from their perspective, now they were still, this is a group of men, so they're they haven't figured out this gender stuff that I was just talking about with you later, but uh, earlier. But so 
from from the basic mystical story of the Zohar is that the feminine aspect of the divine got cut off from the masculine aspect of the divine. So the masculine aspect was still this omni other transcendent, <clears throat> but it got cut off from its, fem its own feminine aspect by human beings. That's what this verse is about to say. Adam drove out that. Adam caused this rift. That's the really radical thing the Zohar is saying. We broke the divine. How in the world could we do that? But we broke the divine. Adam drove out that. That's why Adam was kicked out of the garden, because Adam had already committed the sin of, of, in essence, kicking himself out of the garden by moving into the dualistic perspective. And the Zohar says almost all of this with just a slight modern twist that I'm adding to it. But most of it's literally from the Zohar is that <clears throat> That is the Shekhinah. Adam caused the Shekhinah to be in exile. And that's why Adam was, had to go in exile. And he had to go in exile with the Shekhinah, who he exiled. And so Adam drove out the Shekhinah. And so God forced us, human being. Adam is just primordial man, primordial human. I've got to remember to say it that way, primordial human. So is, is in exile with the Shekhinah because we caused that exile. And it's... The truth of it is, and then they go one, one line even more, there's one more teaching that is so fantastic than about the Zohar, which is, says, and what is the Shekhinah? What is et? So the Hebrew word et, the first letter is aleph in that little word, and the last letter is tav. And those happen to be the first and last letter of the alphabet in Hebrew. And so the Zohar is going all out to, to, to tear apart this language stuff and saying, Adam drove out et, meaning all, everything that can be created with all the letters from A to Z, which is basically everything that can be created in the conceptual realm using all the letters. Adam, that's what the Shafina is. And Adam caused that to be separated uh, and, and, and exile with the Shafina. And what that means on a psychological level, that means that, uh, that human beings created a reality plane, created, we created all sorts of worlds and all, all sorts of stories. We can call them religions, cultures, all of our beliefs and views and opinions is all hinged on language. And uh, we, created, we created the world. And this is, the core, this is a core Jewish teaching that the world came into being for speech. So if, you know, if you go back again to the beginning of Genesis, you hear this story, it says, and God said, let there be light. So, that's why I had to keep saying the Jewish text, and not only Jewish, because Christianity is built on it, and Islam is built around the same principle of the word, that the word that the world was spoken into being. So I used to think that was a metaphor, not like some booming voice spoke and the world came into being. But now it's like, oh, no, now I get it. The world was spoken into being. The world we're talking about, everything we're talking about came into being through speech and language that there's nothing we could talk about that isn't speech and language. We can have experiences that were in speech and language, but there's nothing we can talk about. There's nothing we can write about that's not speech and language. And that was created by human being. And we live in that world. That is our world. We made it up and we live in it. So we are actually in exile with what we created, you know, these things we created are, are our gods. Literally, we call, some of them we call gods, but we certainly have an idolatry. 
idolatry. We live in the world of idolatry. We worship the things we created. We created this world. We created us and them, Jews and Muslims, Palestinians and Israelis, good guys and bad guys, men and women. All of that was created. Uh, and we created it. And we're in exile with it. It's just sort of an, I think the Zohar is pointing out an accurate truth that, you know, our sin. And that's what, so in the Zohar, in another part of the Zohar, the author of the Zohar is telling a story when he was sitting around with Adam. So the guy who wrote the book said, oh, one time I was sitting around with Adam, this guy in the book, the guy in the talk. One time I was sitting around with Adam and he asked me that I, he asked that I not reveal what he really did wrong any more than it already sort of, whatever you can get from the Torah itself. Don't, don't say more than that. But obviously he didn't listen to him. He, he told this whole other story, what Adam really did wrong. <clears throat> but I think they got the story right. This is, we live in exile with the Shekhinah, which is the whole conceptual realm. It is still all God. There's, there's, everything is God, nothing but God. But we don't recognize it because we're, we're living in a dualistic delusion of what, what this world is. So we misperceive the world. But we live in this world that was spoken into being by us human beings. And in such a world, people are going to kill each other. Until so, uh, in this framework, what is the feminine? I think for them, the embodied world, because the the embodied world, the body is feminine somehow to them. There, yeah. and the the needs of the body. So, so the sort of the existing. I don't. I mean, they I don't. Uh, this is not where I think Jewish mystics were their most enlightened being. I, I think they're totally lost still in the patriarchal story. Uh, that they're telling about their patriarchal ancestors. So, and uh, <clears throat> and the male gods, the omni god, and the female gods, the god of this world, this world and senses and bodies, and uh, and there's it's a little bit of a put down. Maybe there's a lot of a put down still. Uh, although to their credit, they're also saying we live in the realm of the sacred feminine. That's what this this realm is, and uh, and. Uh, and we are the ones who can fix up the whole universe. And the fixing up the whole universe is a Kabbalistic frame, a term that comes right from this story. This, this is how the universe got broken. We have to fix it. It's called tikkun olam, fixing the world, which most Jews nowadays mean, think mean social justice work. It's called tikkun olam. And that is part of fixing the world. But what the mystics meant by fixing the world is getting rid of the fundamental dualistic misperception so that we could ex re-experience the unity, which if we did, we'd stop killing each other. So that it's not that it wouldn't be a world of social justice if we could get it. So it's not, not excluding social justice, but social justice has sort of been appropriated by, by activists. It's fine. It's a good way, but uh, as, what, as what tikkun olam is. But it is that, but it's much more than that. It's that and more. One would lead to the other, but <clears throat> and so then the Zohar is saying this is this is the mess we're in until Sinai, and, and it does say now there's going to be a solution to this problem, and the solution to Sinai. So there is a Kabbalistic teaching. I had heard this a long time ago that, like, I'm putting together the story I'm telling. Are it's, it's, the only thing original about it is the way I'm pulling the strands. I mean, these are all strands that I got exposed to. So, so I'm in Buddhism, some about, oh, this is what language does. 
and I'm just pulling together the different strands to weave another story. Uh, and that's what it's meant to be. It's meant to be another story, but I think it's capturing a lot of what happened in the, inadvertently in, in Genesis. So, so if you look at the story of Genesis, you know, basically uh, it becomes a Jewish story, but in the Jewish story, because once Abraham enters the picture, but, but even in the Jewish story, it's, trying, it's still trying to say, things just keep getting worse and worse. And, and the book of Genesis ends when, when the Jewish people are slaves in Egypt. But that's just a paradigm for sort of the here and now. We live in this realm of the here and now where, where, where human beings are still acting this way. And slavery is, a, is, I mean, the slavery in Egypt was terrible and slavery now is terrible. So, okay, what's the way out? So that at least the English name of the book for what's the way out is Exodus. <laughs> What's the way out? How do you get out of this mess? How do you get out of Egypt? But how do you get out of this mess where the human the human beings are in? So the <clears throat> so from a spiritual point of view, that Genesis has some hints. It's not like it's not like what happens in Sinai wouldn't have happened had there's some very special other stories uh, that the Jewish ancestors go through in, in our version of the story. But okay, there there are individual pieces of the way out. Are happen as in the story in Genesis. So I'm going to skip that for now. But but then the actual insight for how to get out uh, arise in uh, in Exodus, and it has to do with <clears throat> the course of the the the, agenda, the the way that the solution is possible to this mess is that somehow or another deconditioning has to be possible. If deconditioning was not possible, then you would never see through the see through the delusions. So, so in my experience, perhaps in yours, in my experience, that kind of fundamental deconditioning, like okay, I was, I'm telling stories about deconditioning, but I didn't learn how to start to de really decondition and understand that what was happening until I started developing this contemplative practice which cultivates and, and emphasizes witnessing over thinking. And if you can cultivate the witnessing quality enough, then you can start to see some of the delusions that come along with thinking. Um, not like I've seen all of them, I've just seen some of them. But, uh, and, uh, and recognize that it's a constant process. You know, one has to go through this process constantly to not fall back into the delusions of thought and, and stay there and stay stuck there. So, So the common thread, I'll just tell you one piece of Abraham. The, the story of Abraham begins with him having to take a journey. He has to leave his father's house. So let's just say that much. <clears throat> There's no way to have the kind of insights we need without somehow getting out of the place where all the conditioning is. Our story, our beliefs, our views, our opinions, which are reinforced by staying home. If you never leave home, if you only speak one language, if you never travel around the world, you know, uh, it's hard to have a perspective on things. So, so the, the um, most important revelation in our tradition, in the Jewish tradition, comes in stories at Sinai. And the stories in, at Sinai involve Moses, who's another prophet. But the story of Moses can't take place without him uh, 
having a radical departure from his family of origin. You know, first he gets to get kicked out of his family of origin as a baby, but then he gets raised in Pharaoh's palace. And it's not till he's a grown up adult in essence in Pharaoh's palace that he then leaves. He has to leave the, ent the entire civilization in which he was a prince. He has to leave that all behind in order for something different to come through. We all have to do that. That's called leave taking. <clears throat> it's true of every spiritual tradition. It's, it's sort of amazing how similar it is. The Buddha also had to leave the princely palace mm -hmm. to have his awakening, right? Everybody has to leave. Uh, I think many people think Jesus was a desert father, right? He, he, he went to be with the Essenes, who also left traditional values and went and lived in the, in the wilderness. And going to the wilderness is certainly one of the places where we can decondition because <clears throat> the wilderness is less made up of all this man, human-made stuff. You, know? uh, okay, you carry it with you, no, no, no doubt about that. You take your stories with you. But when you're out in nature, at least there's a, a possibility. You're not, you're not only looking at, condition, at that conditioned realm as it happened through human beings. But, okay, so Moses leaves his family. I mean, leaves his, his palace behind. The, the teaching itself is a mystical, at least the stories about this leaving. He was, the Jewish stories about it is that he was this midrash that the rabbis told, I think, that he was 40 years old when he left Egypt. <clears throat> and then he, then he goes into Midian, he becomes a, a shepherd, and he was 80 years old when the burning bush happens. So at the burning bush, the, these numbers 40 are magical numbers for the human soul. In the Torah as well, and in, uh, so you know, rained and poured for forty days. You know, uh, there's a number of forty. So <clears throat> when you say Moses was forty, it's because there's a there's an ancient human understanding that forty was the weeks of gestation. That from the time of uh, in human conception, from the time between when something is conceived and when it's ready to come out into the world, it takes forty weeks of cooking, so to speak, to be ready to be born into the world. That's what the 40s are. I think that's what all the 40s are. Something new is about to be unfolded for the world. But it takes 40 for it to happen. So he was 40 when he had left, left Egypt. He was 80 at the burning bush. Uh, it's just trying, it's trying to say, okay, here comes something special that has to do with something new coming into the world. But it's also, uh, from our perspective, maybe those of us who have done some silence or, you know, it, in essence, you know, if you're a shepherd, it's like being on a silent retreat for 40 years. It's like, it's like you know, he's out there with the sheep day in and day out, day in and day out. Uh, <clears throat> and the story itself says, oh, here comes something special. One day Moses was out and he got to the backside of the wilderness. Like, nobody has a clue what that means. But that's what the Hebrew says. <laughs> it was in the, it's, it's, he's, he, the midbar is the wilderness, uh, and the back of the wilderness, you'd say, achar ha-midbar. But nobody knows what the back of the, it says, one day, one day he got to the back of the wilderness. <laughs> what does that mean? It's like, clearly it's something different, like, you know, uh, it's like he almost, I guess, he came out the other side of the wilderness. And if it wasn't, uh, and this is where Hebrew words are so much fun, but uh, the word for wilderness is midbar. 
Now, the word for speech and language is deber. So speech and language, uh, and, and in the word midbar, the way Hebrew grammar works, the, the mem, the, the M sound at the beginning of that word is a preformative. <clears throat> and it's added, and, and there's a three-letter root. So the three-letter root is this word that's the same thing as the word for word, <laughs> words and speech, dalet bet resh. So, so a midbar is either, the, the mem can either be a, a preformative mem that means from, uh, meaning uh, it's from speech. We're in the wilderness because of speech. Could be because of speech, from, from speech. We're, we live in wilderness. Or sometimes a preformative mem is, uh, changes, uh, changes the, the root into a place. So a midbar could also be the place of speech. Either way, the wilderness is, we're in this wilderness of speech and language. That's pretty fascinating. So, so he, got, he finally gets to the other side of it. Now he's been on silent retreat for 40 years. And that's when he's ready to have, that's when he's ready to wake up and see things in a new, brand new way, a complete brand new way. And that's why this is going to be a solution to the problem uh, of, of speech and language and, uh, and what happened in Genesis, <clears throat> the dualistic perspective. So he goes to the, he, he starts wandering. And all of a sudden, he's on the other, he comes out to the other side of the wilderness, and now he sees the burning bush. So <clears throat> I would suggest that the bush was always burning. Everything's always burning. Everything's made up of energy. Uh, uh, nothing changed except that Moses is now ready for this. So, like, he has reached the place after this 40 years of silent retreat where he's now ready to see what's always been obvious. He's able to see it as energy burning and fire. And even still, he has to turn towards it. So he sees the bush burning and the, and the verse says, oh, let me turn aside now and look at this. So it's a way of saying, okay, I better start paying attention. And the bush is also a thorn bush. So in the human psyche, what it's saying is, okay, at some point, the calling of why we're here and what we need to face that we've been running away from forever, you know, it's, okay, now you're ready to face it. But still, you got to turn and face it. You have to turn and look at it. And it's only after he turns and look at it, then it starts speaking to him. Now, now, now the revelation can start to flow through him. So the divine voice starts to flow through him. The way Cecil B. DeMille handled it in the movie, The Ten Commandments, is when Charlton Heston is playing Moses, gets to the burning bush, and he hears the voice. It's Charlton Heston's voice. is God's voice at the bush. Uh, which is brilliant. It was a brilliant, that's a midrash that Cecil B. DeMille put into the movie. You know, it's, it's saying, oh, how would we hear God's voice? It sounds like us. <clears throat> so Moses is ready to hear the divine voice inside of himself speaking to himself. So now the bush is ready to start speaking to him. He's ready to start hearing his calling. He's really ready, ready to start hearing the deepest truths of the universe, because this is, from the Jewish point of view, this is, this is it, Sinai is it. You know, <clears throat> it's the paradigm for, for the big awakening, the big something, the big revelation. <clears throat> so now that he's ready to start hearing the voice, the voice of the divine starts speaking through him. Uh, and, it's, uh, and, the, and the first things it says are, are really critical, important, uh, 
<clears throat> aspects of of why this is a revelation of uh, of such import. So, <clears throat> so the voice uh, says to him. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, take off your shoes, take your shoes from off your feet because now you're standing on holy ground. So uh, that's an incredibly rich line. This is, a, uh, no matter how that story got written down, the storyteller is, is drawing, is pulling everything together. It's pulling the whole story together here <clears throat> in that simple line uh, because uh, in two ways. One is, <clears throat> Now that we're ready to see the truth, the first thing that happened when we went into the, into duality was we we recognized we were naked and we started getting dressed. Now we're ready to turn the process around. So the first thing you do is start getting undressed. Take your shoes off. Right? Now we can start taking all the masks off, all the clothes off, and all the garments off. Because now we want to get to the inner truth. That's the first thing. It's pretty amazing. If, you, if nothing else, it's a good line, you know, like it's a good, some storyteller, it's amazing. It's amazing. You have to remember you told that story way back when, many books ago, you know, many, many chapters ago, uh, whatever. And, uh, <clears throat> and then holy, now you're standing and now you're, now you're in holy territory. And the word holy from, from this point on in the Torah and in the Jewish lexicon and, and the Jewish a raison d'etre for being from from here on in this moment in, in Jewish history and this story holiness is the whole scene the holiness is the whole shebang that's the whole purpose for being here is holiness everything about what we from here on the essence of Judaism is, a, is supposed to be about holiness we're supposed to be a holy people we're supposed to bring holiness into the world to bring the recognition of holiness into the world because the world is holy but really what we're bringing is the recognition into the world of the sacredness of everything. Every blessing that a, a Jewish person does, if they're using the path of blessing, it says, you know, blessed is the divine who made us holy. And, and what we're about to do is, 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 is we're doing this because of holiness. It's, it's, it's become the central feature of Judaism from this moment on. But before this moment, it was only mentioned once in the opening story. It appears in the opening story of once upon a time, and the only thing that's holy is the Sabbath. Hmm. <clears throat> so if you read the, if you go back to the six days of creation, oh, the first day was good, and the second day was good, and the third day was good. All this doing, all the doing stuff was good. And and you sort of have to try to hold on to the, this is a problem with language, but you have to try to at least hold on to when it says all these things were good, doesn't mean the kind of good that's the opposite of bad. It's just good. It's all, this is all good. Uh, without a bad, it's all good, all that stuff. But only the only Shabbat where nothing is done is holy. Because you have all this doing and doing, and that's good, And then, but being is holy. The only thing that's called holy is, is the sacredness of, of recognizing all the stuff that was done, stopping, paying attention, being with what is. The Sabbath is the paradigm of holiness in Jewish tradition, but but holiness only applies to that to this realm of, of being, the sacredness of being. So again, I think that's being that's what's being introduced here. <clears throat> the sacredness of being. 
Then the voice also says, this is the, and these this are the crucial things. This is the beginning of the revelation. The voice that Moses hears come through is that, you know, I'm here because I hear the cries. The whole reason that the divine is revealing itself in the present moment to Moses is because it does hear the, it's, it's that which hears the cries of the suffering of the world. So uh, this is a Jew, Jewish liberation theology, but it, it's, it is based on the, the text. That's what the whole reason the revelation is happening is because it's time to take people out of suffering. It's time to take, it's, I, I hear the cries, now it's time to do something about it. Uh, to end the suffering of, of slavery, to end slavery. All right, so then Moses isn't sure. You know, he's got his calling now, what he needs to do. It's his unique calling because he came out of that world. You know, we, we come out of, we each have our own unique calling. Uh, and when you hear it, you know, okay, but I'm not sure I want to do it. So Moses says that he's still just a human being. He's not perfectly refined yet. So that's, it takes. It's going to take him longer. Still, he's just just he's on retreat for forty years. Now he's just ready to wake up. He's, he's going to have more to do afterwards. We'll see that in a moment. But the but everything he needs to do is presented already right here. And <clears throat> so he said, I, I, "I don't know if I can do this. I'm I'm, I'm willing in essence, but I don't know if I can do this." <clears throat> so then the voice of the divine says to him. And the Hebrew is important here, but uh, I'm only going to say again, just a very small phrase. So when he has a self-doubt, the phrase that comes through in the text, literally in the text, and you could say internally in his experience is, So the, the verse says, I will be with you. Ehiya is the key word here. Ehiya which is a conjugation of the verb to be. Uh, so the verb to be has, has, has at its root three letters, hey and yud and hey. And that's the verb to be. And uh, ehia means uh, uh, either I am or I will be. And uh, the biblical Hebrew these are all important grammatical pieces. Not that I want to focus on them so much, but <clears throat> Hebrew didn't have, like, biblical Hebrew didn't have a past, present, and future tenses. Uh, it's just not how it's written. It only has what's called two aspects. I don't know where the word aspect came from, but instead of thinking of three tenses, like we do past, present, and future, and, and language is organized that way, it only had two, and they call them two aspects. And one aspect is completed action, which doubles with what we would call the past tense. And the other possibility is action that's not yet completed, which would be the present and the future, except that the future doesn't exist. So it's, uh, it's now possible, sort of. But, uh, but again, that's a different way of looking at the universe, not to have a future tense. <laughs> think about that. You know, it's hard to, you can't really think about what it means, but you could get a glimmer of like, wait, what do you mean there's no future tense in the language? What would language, what would life be like without a future tense? <laughs> it's almost hard to imagine, but you'd be like, but if I could imagine it, wow, what would that be? Uh, anyways, so Ehia is the key revelation of this story of the burning bush. 
Only normally people think it happened in verse 14. So in verse 14, we're going to hear the words, Ehiyah asher Ehiyah, I am that I am, or I will be that I will be. But the revelation itself is Ehiyah, and it's already here in verse 11. I think this is actually missed on some level the tradition, at least that I read it in commentaries, somehow I was missing the point, but here's the word. It's going to, this key word is going to come in a second. Uh, but Ehiyah. It says, Ehia Iman, I will be with you, and this will and this and that, and that will be the sign. Like Moses said, How you know, uh, how can I do this? And, and the divine voice says, I'm with you, that's the sign. But there's no sign other than there's not like a there's no external sign then said, it's not like oh the snake will be the sign or the cane. I'm with you. That that is the sign. It's that and I think what's already being, is this is already the final revelation, I think. But Judaism still doesn't know that, and even the text doesn't know it. The text, I think, sort of more or less misses this point. The, you know, the, uh, I said this in the synagogue a, a couple months ago, my brother-in-law was there, and he said, well, I never heard anybody say Moses got it wrong. It's like, well, can you say that? <laughs> Anyways, but... Uh, so Ehia is is a, is awakening up to the to the to the divine I am that is the universe. That's why he can do this. That's why it's possible to do this. But it's not it's not the I am of ego. So Moses doesn't get it. He, he doesn't. He, he and neither did the text. And neither did the Jewish people as a whole didn't get this. Uh, but. <clears throat> And so Moses has to say, "Okay, I'm gonna, okay, I'll do it, but I'm going to get there." And they're going to want to. I'm going to. They're going to say, "You know, okay, go. I'll go there. I'll tell them God says to let the people go from Egypt." But they're going to say, "Which God? You know, what? What? What's God? What? Which God are you talking about? What, what's your name?" And so he asked. He asked this voice inside of himself to, to present itself as a name, and that's where the famous line comes through. And, it, and the line comes again: "Ehiyashir Ehiyah." I am that I am. Now, ever since I heard that, I thought, like, that's a, not a name. <laughs> he wants a name. He says, what's your name? And, and the response is, Ehiyah, Sher Ehiyah. Now, this is just, that's what the text itself says. And, and that always struck me as like, well, that's not a name. What's your name? I am that I am. It's almost like, what do you, stop it. <laughs> it's like the voice is saying, what do you, you know. And it, if you think about what I just said, the Ehia was in verse 11. It's already there. You could say, oh, Ehia, I'm Ehia, the one that was just there a second ago. Ehia, that's inside of you. That Ehia, I'm that one. But because uh, uh, I think what it's really trying to come through is the awakened sense of the great I am of the universe. Is what, is what, that's what consciousness is. That's what's flowing through us. That's what... Uh, and... It's even it doesn't get it, even though that's a clarification, maybe uh, Moses doesn't get it. And he says, uh, <clears throat> here's a personal anecdote. So, my, my daughter was three years old. <clears throat> my wife and I gave her a teddy bear. 
I don't know if it's under, I think this is in the book, but my wife and I gave her a teddy bear. Uh, it was of a stuffed koala bear. <clears throat> so I sat down with, uh, that night, I sat down in her bed with her. I can still remember where I was sitting, where she was sitting. It was 32 years ago. But uh, I said to her, <clears throat> do you want to name the bear? She said, yeah, let's name the bear. And I, out of my mouth came the words, I started to say, well, it could be. And she said, Kibby, Kibby. And that became the name of the bear. The stuffed bear is called Kibby. And my granddaughter, 32 years later, is still playing with Kibby. <clears throat> Kibby was never meant to be the name of the bear, from my perspective. I mean, it's fine, but my daughter called the bear Kibby. But it's the same verb. So even the same verb. I was saying it could be. She heard a name because she wanted to hear the verb. She was looking for a name. And so is Moses. And I think what happens is the equivalent of Moses saying, oh, Izzy, God's name is Izzy. And from now on, the Jewish people are going to call God Izzy. And it's as, as if to forget God is. It's like it misses the fact. It's not a name. It's the existential reality of isness. I do think it's the most, the, this is for me one of the most, not even the piece I'm telling you now, that the fact that this revelation at Sinai is built around the verb to be, that what comes through our highest revelation about the, about the divine is based on the verb to be. I thought like, that's great. I could, if I was gonna make up the best possible name for God I could possibly think of, it would be the verb to be. You know, that's what is. God is what is. Uh, uh, this, this, that's what that certainly comes out of my mind practice too. And mindfulness is like, right? Pay attention. Truth is what it, it is. What it is like this right now. All right. So one last line. So the next line says, uh, the next line is the is the same mistake I'm pointing to. And so it says, right after Ehiya share Ehiya, it says, tell them Ehiya sent you. And then the next line says. And so yud heh vav -Hey will be God's name forever and ever and ever. And it's not the same four letters even. It's like, wait, where did that come from? Ehiya is God's name. And it's not a name. And but instead, and, and the profundity of that is, it changes from the, yud heh vav -Hey is in the third person masculine. Because the yud is a, is a grammatical prefix for that, for the third person masculine. So it takes the whole revelation out of the I am of the universe manifesting inside of us without gender, because the first person has no gender, and puts it into he is, which is gender and out there. And that's the, that's the mistake we're still trying to, rec you know, the verb is right. It's got the verb right. It's just the wrong form. And that's what we're doing. We're fixing up the form. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'll, um, I'll press stop on this. In the melting snows of Ontario Where the wind will make you shiver T'was the month of May up in Georgian Bay Near the mouth of the Musquash River where the bears prowl and the coyotes howl And you can hear the osprey scream Back in 99 we were cutting pine And sending it down the stream Young Sandy Gray came to go home Bay all the way from P.E.I. Where the 
weather's rough and it makes it tough No man's afraid to die Sandy came a-smile and 30,000 islands Was the place to claim his glory Now Sandy's gone but his name lives on This is Sandy's story Young Sandy Gray lives on a day In the echoes of a mighty owl Listen close and you'll hear a ghost in this story that I tell Boys, this story that I tell Now Sandy Gray was boss of the men who'd toss the trees onto the shore They'd come and go till they built a flow a hundred thousand logs or more Then he'd ride them down towards Severn Sound to cut them up in the mills for timber. And the ships would haul spring, summer, and fall till the ice came in December. One Sabbath day, Big Sandy Gray came into camp with a peavy on his shoulder. With a thunder crack, he dropped his axe and the room got a little bit colder. Said, come on, all you, we got work to do. We gotta give her all we can give her. There's a jam of logs at the little jog near the mouth of the Musquash River. With no time to pray on the Lord's day, they were hoping for God's forgiveness. But the jam was high in a troubled sky, and they set out about their business. They poked with their poles and ran with the rules and tried to stay on their feet. Every trick they tried, one man cried, this log jam's got us beat. But Sandy Gray was not afraid and he let out a mighty yell. I'll be damned, we'll break this jam or it's breakfast in hell, boys. Breakfast in hell.
listen close, you'll hear a ghost down by Sandy Gray Falls. Through the tops of the trees, you'll hear in the breeze the echoes of a mighty yell. I'll be damned, we'll break this jam or it's breakfast in hell. And Sandy Gray lives on a day in the echoes of a mighty yell. I'll be damned, we'll break this jam or it's breakfast in hell.